invite the children forward for a children's story right up here. I think I have one final story about this little lamb. Maybe, actually, I could come up with another one too, but my kids recognize this lamb as one of the ones that was born this year that we sold. And we, I still remember the day that we, we took it out to say goodbye to it. And our dog howled because it sensed that, <laughs> I don't know if it was sad or what, but. But this story is about this little lamb. We didn't name this little lamb. I just called her a little lamb. And she, is so, she was so soft. You could, she would come right up to you, and you, she would let you pet her. And Mitchell, what did she let you do right at the end there when she was laying on the ground? Yeah, she would just lay there, and he could pet her all over. That's how friendly she was. But one night, I went out there to check on the sheep because I heard this was towards the beginning when they were first born. And I was concerned as to, they were small, and I thought maybe they could fit out of the cattle panel and get out of the, the uh, cage area because we had a, a shed and then kind of a, we call it a, a corral area where we would keep them in at night. And I thought, well, maybe they're getting out or something. I heard the dogs barking, and I went out there to check on the little lambs because they were both born at that time. And guess what the little lambs were doing? Their parents are all kind of looking around, keeping quiet, not making any noise. What, are the, what do you think the little lambs are doing? They weren't baying. They weren't bleating, if you guys recall it that. What do you think they were doing? They were chasing each other. <laughs> in fact, the, one of them got the other one in the corner, and, and it, then they came out of the corner, and they were jumping up and down, almost like when you see deer bounce like that. They were bouncing around, and here their parents were looking around, because they you know coyotes and stuff come at nighttime. And here these little ones were, they were just <laughs> as happy as could be. Like it, it's like they were um, enjoying the night. And I went out there another time later on when they were bigger to see if they would continue doing that. Because when you get older, sometimes you, know, you get more concerned with stuff. And I thought maybe the lambs would be like that. But it was before we sold them, I went out there another night. And there they were again, <laughs> bouncing around like little deer, chasing each other. Of course, the male lamb was butting her a lot more than it was kind of being, I thought, mean. But, but anyway... There they were, still not afraid of the dark, not afraid of the howls of the coyote, not afraid of things that might be out there in the night. And our scripture reading talked about that. How if we're with God, we're not afraid of the night. We're, we're with him and there is light. And that little lamb reminded me of that. In fact, um, she, I'm sure that this little lamb, will went, I know she went to a good home, but I'm sure that she'll keep on with that type of personality, even though as she gets older, she may be afraid of things uh, as she her instinct kicks in or whatever. But I hope that deep down she'll remember, uh, as we should remember, that if the shepherd is there and your parents are there especially, then there's nothing to be afraid of. So hopefully she'll bond with that shepherd and she'll uh, not have that fear as she gets older. But we can have the same thing as we bond with Christ. So let me pray with you guys that God will help you to have that no matter what happens in your life. Father in heaven, bless our little ones that are here and the ones who aren't here today. And we pray that each one of them will, as they face the darkness that we as adults are so concerned about, that uh, they'll be able to remind us that we can still be children and trust. We can trust that the shepherd is right there. We can trust that there is a protector. We can trust that we can still have fun even in the darkness uh, because you are with us. 
So guide us all to remember that. If things happen in our children's lives that are hard or that hurt them, we pray that they can come to you um, if we're not available, and, we can, and they can be pointed to Jesus who can help them through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Father in heaven, we do want to overcome darkness, but we know that the only possibility of doing that is to look to you. So this morning we do that. We ask you to send the Holy Spirit who testifies to the things that we will be looking at and points us to the very words of Jesus, the light of the world. Guide us to see him clearly and guide us to apply this to our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I thought about this topic. I was reviewing it during the week and I was... Last night, as, a, as the darkness kind of dawned in my house and I was kind of in a worshipful atmosphere, my heart was kind of just relaxed. I went and laid down in bed and right there in the middle of welcoming the Sabbath, I'd been in my boys' room and we were talking about heaven and, and they were asking questions. It was it's rather fun to imagine things with kids, especially. And when they start asking questions, if you've got like a vision of Ellen White's to go back on and, to, and, and we had studied heaven in a Sabbath school lesson for the Sabbath school class. And so a lot of things came up in the room and then I left the room and as, like I was saying, I was laying my head down on my pillow, right there in the middle of the peaceful feeling, an old movie clip came back from 19 years ago. A horror, a horror movie, of all things. And if I, if I named it, you all would, would really just, oh, you watch that? And I'm like, God, you know, what, what's going on here? I'm, I'm trying to focus on, <laughs> I just talked about heaven and all of that, and now right here, out of the blue, unbidden from me, is a really dark thought. And scenes from the movie started flashing. I'm trying to put it away. I'm like, no, I don't want to think about that. Get away from me, Satan. All this, my brain, I'm just having this battle. My wife doesn't know it. She's over there. And I'm just in this battle zone for probably, it took me about 30 minutes to get rid of that thing of prayer. And what I had to do, finally, it dawned on me, my old practice used to be we look at Jesus in Revelation and we see him as you know, this lamb who died for us, this coming beautiful king, but he also has this fire in his eyes, this, this, this amazing ability to burn away things. He's either got that fire in his eyes because he's looking at the candlesticks and there's a reflection of his church, he has them in his heart, or he, I think that's part of it, but also he is willing to burn away these things that hold on to us long before the earth is cleansed. And so right there at the end of the whole struggle, I could sense the darkness was lifting. If you've ever read vision, uh, visions or dreams that people have had where Ellen White had a dream where angels surround people who were in prayer and kind of bring darkness, it's like all of a sudden it broke. It broke with me imagining Christ's fiery eyes burning up those scenes, just melting them away, like a, like a piece of film melting in a fire. And then I said, all right, Lord, I'm good. And I went to sleep. Next thing you know, the roosters are crowing. It's a fresh, beautiful May morning. But that was coming to me right there in the darkness of last night. Now, it may not be a flashback of some kind of strange movie like that. It could be a traumatic event in life. It could be something that you struggle with. It could be maybe something, a harm that somebody did to you. Whatever it may be, I, I truly believe that Christ can give us victory over these things and help us overcome our darkest moments even now. 
because as we have learned from Pauline and Graham, and I don't agree with everything Pauline and Graham uh, present. You have to understand that. I, I took a class from Pauline. I argued with him in class at times. So I'm, I'm not, I didn't show those videos the last two weeks to say that you all have to agree with everything they said. I showed those videos for you to picture what it was like in the first century and also to understand what these Christians faced when Jesus tells them, overcome, overcome, overcome. They mention in the video that Christ took the language of the day. For instance, the title first and last, which was attached to a goddess. And he, in Revelation, uses that term to describe himself. Well, we know that all these terms originate with God himself. They said that uh, it was utilized to communicate to the churches personally in the context of what they were facing. I believe that's true, but I believe there's another aspect that really should have been highlighted. That he takes the term, since, for instance, first and last, he reclaims it because the devil has in some way hijacked that term, and then he transforms that language so that every time they would hear it in their current society of that day, they'd go up and they'd hear about Artemis or whoever, the first and the last, all of a sudden they'd say, no, Jesus is the first and the last. They would transform their way of thinking. It would take something that Satan had clothed in darkness and it would actually become very personal to them and he would reclaim it. And so I believe as we look at this church, especially today, that's exactly what we have as a possible reality for the church. That God can take whatever situation we're in and he can reclaim it, he can transform it, he can make something glorious out of it when Satan means to hijack it and counterfeit it and totally pollute it in darkness. And I also believe that in Revelation, there's what's called a polemic. In other words, a, a God through John and through the language that was chosen, he's, he's deliberately waging war against the false beliefs of that day. If you don't believe that, just look through and how the, the book progresses down, especially from chapters 13 onward and the three angels' message in particular. He's waging war against the darkness. So that's what I mean by a polemic against the so-called or false gods. You know, they're so-called gods because there really are no gods other than God. They just want to claim these titles. We know from other religions, when people come out of worshiping many gods, that some of them tell us that these many gods, these different statues and all that, are either manifestations that demons have shown in the past, in other words, they appear like a certain animal or whatever to certain people at certain times, or they are just um, some kind of manifestation of demons in some way. And so when we talk about false gods and all this, the Bible has no other god but God. The rest of them are just claiming authority that doesn't belong to them. And so as I look at this church, I think about how God overcame darkness, and so can we. And he even takes the very language and gives us that example. We've looked at the time periods before. Let's look at them again. We have... Ephesus starting out with an apostolic type feel, a, a feel of first love, a feel of the gospel beginning to spread, this idea of, of, you know, the only thing you need to do is really keep that first love going, repent and keep that going, go back to that. Smyrna comes in and there's no real rebuke to Smyrna. Smyrna is going through persecution, years of persecution. And what we found was if we would restore our first love, like it says in the Great Controversy, the fires of persecution would be rekindled and I think we would follow a similar scenario as these churches portray. You would have a union of church and state, like we looked at at Pergamum, and eventually a very dark period 
And so what prepares us for the dark period in the persecution is the first love with Christ. That is what's going to prepare us. Read the chapter in the Great Controversy called Jacob's Time of Trouble. What that's talking about is not you going through your laundry list to be saved. It's going through your, Lord, is there anything between us? It's a wrestling match between you and God. A personal wrestling match at the end of time between you and God. Because you want to go with him. And you don't want anything to hinder you from making it to see him face to face. Read Jacob's Time of Trouble because as we read through this scenario here and we go down through, we're going to see, even in our day and age, the medieval church resurface. A, a only thing that can counteract it is a true reformation. And meanwhile, the medieval church goes on to orthodoxy and getting everybody in line while we, if you notice, it goes back and forth. Reformation, orthodoxy, worldwide mission, infidelity. The thing that's left over for the church that stays in darkness is infidelity. And Jesus will come knocking and nobody will answer. So we don't want to be in that camp as we progress down through here. The only way to overcome darkness and fear is reformation. That's where we're going today as far as the progression of this church. So I'm going to take you to the church of Thyatira. If you'd like to turn there in your Bible, you can turn while I'm going through some background information. For those of you who don't know, Thyatira is right here on the map. If It's not a coastal town. It's actually inland. You can't hardly read it from there, but um, right up next to Pergamum, to the east of Pergamum, southeast, is Thyatira. Some believe this is some kind of preaching circuit, maybe John made or others. It's right there along the way. It's not a huge politically um, vested city, but you do find some important things there. What I found interesting was the name Thyatira, we pronounce it Thyatira, in the Greek it's Thyatira, it means odor of affliction, odor of affliction, some kind of odor that comes out of trouble. Now we know from Paul's writings we're to be some kind of, uh, almost like a perfume, something like that, but I found that's interesting that it means that, but it's from an earlier word that meant daughter, Thugatira, and it was used, this word Thugatira, it was used to commemorate the birth of a daughter to Greek general Seleucus. You can read about that on Wikipedia, other places, history books. But anyway, it happened in 290 BC. So originally it was Pelopia, and it was dedicated to the goddess worship and things like that. But then later on it's called Thugatira, or daughter, because he was waging war with another one of Alexander the Great's generals. And he seemed to think he was overcoming. And then his daughter was born in the middle of this war. And he's like, daughter, you know, he felt good. You know, New life, this is a sign, you know, God, you know, the gods are with me, or whatever he believed. But that's the background of what this city was about. It's about God and goddess worship. Eventually it's about sun worship, big time sun worship with Apollo. And you can read different commentaries. This one's from Vincent Word Studies, but you can compare it to others. According to Pliny, which we're, we're talking about um, time after time of Christ, it was known in earlier times as Pelopia and Euhippia. The city contained a number of corporate guilds, such as potters, tanners, weavers, rope makers, and dyers. It was from Thyatira that Lydia, the purple seller of Philippi, came, Paul's first European convert. So what do we have here? We have, here is this city dedicated to goddess worship and this daughter and all of this, and a daughter of God basically arises in that area. Eventually she has a house church in that area. Paul establishes a work in that area. 
The numerous streams of the adjacent country were full of leeches. Interesting. Uh, the principal deity of the city was Apollo, worshipped as the sun god under the surname Terimnus. A shrine outside the walls was dedicated to Sambatha, a sibyl. The place was never of paramount political importance, but it was a stronghold for false gods. And what we're going to find in this text is Jesus speaks to this very situation, takes him from this focus on a woman, which we'll find Jezebel in the text, instead of this daughter here that's Jezebel, and he tries to show them how they can remain faithful to the end. And so that's where we're going. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 to the angel of the church in Thyatira say, These things says the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, and his feet like polished brass. I mean, you're talking an interesting picture of Jesus there, isn't it? These eyes that are like flames of fire, and we know he's in the midst of seven-branched candlesticks, so some say, well, maybe it's a reflection off the candlesticks, but you find this description other places in Scripture, don't you? You find some of this in the Old Testament. And so this God is a consuming fire, and that is in his eyes. It's not like a fire is an anger type thing. It's a fire. It's, it's, you all know, it's camping season, isn't it? I mean, do you, how do you view a camp, campfire? Is it, it depends on, you know, you could get a fire. I remember one time we were out at a, at a church social. Hope this doesn't happen over there at the park. But, uh, and and this, this, dear old, this dear fellow had a, had a huge amount of brush, and it just went way up in flames. He threw gasoline on the thing, and it went boosh. And it got out of control. And I saw him frantically taking this water and just trying to water down around it. And, and, and he's going, it, it just seemed like a little squirt gun compared to this gigantic. That's not the kind of thing we're talking about where it's out of control. It's going to consume you. It's going to burn up your house. What we're talking about here is something that can consume what needs to be consumed. But what happens when it's experienced in a loving relationship? A campfire is a totally different thing than a bonfire out of control. And you saw that fire west of town, up there on the hillside. It just, I watched it and thought, I hope that thing doesn't come on down. So what we have here is the only feelings of fear and all that towards fire are those who need to be afraid of it. When I look at Jesus and I need something consumed like last night, I'm thankful he's got eyes of fire. So what we find here is these individuals are going to need this power. And this power is going to be highlighted later on when we find the nations being dashed to pieces like pottery, which is right out of Daniel chapter 2, and you know it's the feet there, but what are the feet like here? Polished brass, solid, powerful. The implements of war were made out of this back then. So we find this beautiful description of Jesus, in my opinion. I know some of them may be turned off from it, but, but I see this as Jesus in power comes to this church and presents himself personally as one who can help them overcome darkness. Notice the light emphasis here, this, this, this light, because they're going to have darkness. I have knowledge of your works and your love. Notice before we talked about Pergamum, and they, need, they needed to go, um, the church that you have that actually has the works that lost them was Ephesus. These guys have their works, and they have love. So there's some, there is a group in this mess that's going to be described here in Thyatira that has the works and the love and the faith of Jesus and the strength that they need in trouble. That's encouraging because we think of our own darkest situations, personally, corporately, politically, things can get dark. 
And what is this saying? These people, even though they face things like that, they had the works, they had the love, they had that faith, this idea of looking forward, help and strength in trouble. And that your last works will be more than the first. Really what it should be saying. That's an amazing thought. They've been faithful to Jesus. At least there's a remnant we'll find is a remnant in this group that is faithful to Jesus. And then their last will be more than their first. But I have this against you. That you let the woman Jezebel say she's a prophet and give false teaching. Notice you can have all those things going on and what ruins it? Yeah. It's like, you know, they say too many cooks are stirring the pot. Well, what happens here is it's not that. It's, it's the wrong ingredient, false teaching, and as well as this prophetess. And it says that she makes my servants go after the desires of the flesh and take food offered to false gods. You know, John and them are clear. There's no such thing as any gods. Those are all false, so-called gods. But he uses that term Jezebel. Jezebel in 2 Kings 9.22. You can look it up sometime, mark it down. It links not only her religion as false teaching, but it says that her whoredom, or in other words, she would go around and flaunt and all these different things, calls, links her whoredom to witchcraft. Spells, sayings, uh, basically darkness, dark mutterings. We're going to get that later on as we look at Thyatira because there's this hidden knowledge. Well, Jezebel was known for her hidden knowledge. How many prophets of Baal are we talking? Yep, over 400, 450. So this is similar to the description, especially the false teaching. And if we think about the witchcraft... We find that same description, not in first century description, it's talking about the church at the end of time in Revelation 18. That somehow the church, because of false teaching, becomes worse than Jezebel. They become a habitation of demons and witchcraft and all of that and sorcerers. And those people were seen as being outside the city when the fire comes. And so that's what we have going on here. I know I just threw a whole bunch into one text, but false prophets giving false teaching, going after desires of the flesh, and food offered to false gods. Now, you know, we all eat food, and, and that's not necessarily the issue. The issue is, is there was a belief that somehow you could be influenced by these gods through food that had been offered to them. Now, we don't necessarily think of that these days, but let me tell you how we can be influenced by witchcraft and false gods. It's called Pathways. And all you got to do, if you want to go on one of these visits with me, you got to be prayed up and fasted up because I'm not taking you with me any other way. But if, if I get to the point where I have another one of these visits where somebody has demons uh, coming to them in the night and choking them or grabbing little people, girls, and shoving them up to the roof, making them levitate and, and shoving their faces up to the ceilings, I'll take you along. And I'll tell you the only way that counteracts that. I understand the psychology of it and all of that. I understand that. That aside... They've tried counseling, they've tried everything else, and then they call the pastor. What always happens in every one of those homes, it may not be the fault of that child, it could be something else, is some kind of pathway comes into the home. Or the parents are experiencing hearing footwalks, footsteps in the night. Now, this is not Halloween, it's not to scare anybody, I'm not trying to do that. What I'm saying is, what counteracts that? It's nipping the pathways. The devil knows our, the generational sins that each one of us struggles with. 
knows that I sometimes have impatience, okay? And that goes back generations. And I constantly have to work on that. I could be right in the middle of a conversation feeling irritated, almost angry, and my wife can see it, she knows. And I have to take, literally, step out. I have to somehow calm myself down in the situation. You all, you, some of you know that. So where does the root of that come from? Well, we know in some treatments that it goes further back than yourself. Okay, and the Bible teaches generational things. So that could be a pathway the devil wants to use and utilize. It could be something that you're feeding yourself spiritually. We, we sang the song about we eat one holy food. What if we're eating an unholy food? What if we're watching things on TV? And I'll tell you, because that opening story, it's true. If I told you the name of the movie, you would be horrified about the horror movie I watched years ago. But that was over 19 years ago. I can't remember if it was 1997 or, or 96 or 98. I don't remember which year it was, but it was somewhere in that range that I watched that. And now he has ownership to try to bring it to me on a Friday night when I'm talking about heaven. You've got to nip the pathway or it'll envelop you. And what's left is usually fear. So it could be something you watch. It could be something that you've spent time on pursuing in life. It could be monetary pursuits where you're pursuing things like that other than God busyness, whatever it may be, these pathways typically feed into your soul and then, and it may not just be false teaching, then he gains access and darkness comes in. All I got to do is tell you a story of a Wiccan priest and that would make it really clear. Uh, this Wiccan priest was a Seventh-day Adventist and I told this before, years ago, Seventh-day Adventist and for whatever reason, he felt like God had answered his prayers the way he wanted to have him prayed. And, but in the Wiccan way, you could, you could um, read certain rhymes and spells, and you might see a white owl outside your window one day as a result of saying something like that. And he had, there was this whole belief system. You know, those little owls on things, you know, they're, they're symbolic of something. Actually, Wiccanism and all that is huge in the United States. But it began with him reading certain books. By the time I get to him, he is going, they think he's insane. But he's like, I'm not on anything. It's just... The voices are coming, and I've had a group meeting where we were literally choked, and a wind came in and shoved people against the wall, and, all, and it was a Satanist who came into his meeting. And so how do I shut it down? Now, these things are real. And, it, and for him, it began with a slow journey and a pathway that it came into him, and eventually it became almost like a wide highway of letting this in. So what I'm saying is it may not be directly false teaching. It could be false influences as well. And I'm not doing this to give you something to put on your checklist and go home and say, well, I better. I'm saying, deep down inside, is there anything that takes your heart away from God? If it is. I'm not saying you can't have some amusement and all that. I'm just saying be careful. Because the devil will try to use what even looks good. Didn't the fruit look good for food? All right. So he'll use what looks good to get into your soul. And before you know it, there's a root there. And you've got to spend time with the Lord in prayer and pluck that baby out. And I know, after years and years of struggling with things, that that's the case in my life, that I have to keep on looking back. And I'm not going to project it onto the text. But Jezebel was not only about false teaching, but the desires of the flesh, food offered to false gods. We have to watch out what we're feeding ourselves spiritually. So that's all I'm saying that about. Could be even those, those, those YouTube clips about all the latest things happening in the Adventist church that are fearful. That could be false food, especially a steady diet of it. Too much kills a sheep if you give it the wrong thing, too much of it. A little bit. So I have to be careful with that as well. 
In chapter 2, verse 21, how does this link to the medieval time? I gave her time. Now, if you look at Revelation, you have a time element attached to the beast of Revelation 13. Eventually, you find the idea of Revelation 18 as well, some descriptions that are the same as, as the woman who rides the beast and the beast. And so what we find here is this specifically talks to Thyatira, the individual community, but it has a broader implication that stretches to the medieval times, and then it can apply to our time as well because the beast comes back. But I gave her time for a change of heart. This is talking about Jezebel, this false system. But she has no mind to give up her unclean ways. She can't be of one mind with God. She can't have true oneness with God. Only a semblance of oneness, only a little bit of what appears to be that way, because she has all these other false teachings and things. See, I will put her into a bed, and those who make themselves unclean with her into, a, into great trouble. You read the Old Testament if you want to know how someone makes themselves unclean in a bed, okay? That, I'm not going to give you the whole puzzle piece. Figure it out. Into great trouble if they go on with her works, and I'll put her children to death. You say, well, I thought we weren't judged by our works. False. Christians aren't judged by their works if they're in Christ. As far as you before Jesus, you're not judged by that. You're judged by his works. Because now when you accept Christ and you're under his blood and you say, I want your resurrection power, I want you to be Lord of my life, heaven sees his record, not yours. You're still judged according to your works, just not your pre-Christian works anymore. Those, are, those things are blotted out if you remain in Christ. These people are judged according to what appear to be Christian works. Read Matthew 25. There are people who do miracles in my name, cast out demons in my name. I never knew you. They appear to be Christians and are doing Christian things. And God says, well, I'm going to judge you worthy of death. You know, he separates them. And I'll put her children to death. So now you have a woman who has children who's in some kind of illicit relationship with them, uh, individuals, plural, and somehow is in opposition to the church, true church. Is it safe to say this is a false church type of system? That's where you get the medieval thing, where historians look at the seven churches and say, oh, wow, yeah, the, the medieval church united with the state and had many people that they tried to please other than God, and as a result, developed into eventually a sisterhood of churches, so-called Protestant churches of today, and God says eventually they'll be judged and put to death. Not because God wants to do that, but because they are going down a path where they are willing to be Cain against Abel. You'll find in Revelation it progresses where the churches that unite at the end, supposedly under unity, will unite and will eventually become murderers. Now, don't ask me to give you all the details of how that takes place, but the biggest reason why it does is, is false teaching and eventually holy zeal and hatred towards those who are following God, just like in the days of Elijah. We have plenty of history to show that. But notice, and all the churches will see that I am he who makes search in the secret thoughts and hearts of men. I will give to every one of you the reward of your works. So I'm not saying you're rewarded according to your works. Yes, you are. But not according to your, basically, your sins. God's not going to hold those accountable. Right, let's make it a little bit more clear. Let's say you're a self-proclaimed atheist and you're doing good things for people, right? But you don't know Jesus and you choose not to know Jesus and all of this and 
Don't you have good works? You got good works. You, you, you feed the poor. and right? There's good works in there. But what counteracts them? See the difference? If those things are removed, the disbelief, the causing confusion over creation, the belief of creation, the, the willingness that eventually those who even believe in evolution are willing to commit a holocaust, because Germans were pretty smart. They weren't stupid people back then. But there was a belief system that in, in, informed that as well. But you're willing to kill people that are lesser, in your opinion, lesser. Then if those things aren't removed, even one of those bad things counteracts all the good, according to the Bible. If you sin, you're worthy of death. But what happens if they are removed? What is left? Only the good. So the sins and things of the past are removed. God says, I cast them into the midst of the sea. Then all that heaven sees on your record is that. You've been an upstanding citizen. Now you, in your memory, are like, well, I know what it was like when I was a Christian or growing up, you know, what it was like or things I've done. You know, that's your human memory. But, but as far as the record goes, it's good. Because then at that point after accepting Christ, it's still good. Does that mean that if you sin that you should not repent of your sin? No, that's saying you should. Because then you don't want your name to be blotted out of the book of life. So that's a whole other sermon in of itself. But nonetheless, this is saying that we will be rewarded according to our works. So the bottom line is time is up for this power. She has a system of works and will be judged by it because that's all that's left. Jesus isn't in the midst. She has children and Jesus uses her as a warning to the churches. It says, watch out, do not be like this. And God will judge her, which means that she's apostate. So apostate churches here. But we can learn from them as well. But I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, Notice the word rest. It's not like physical rest. It's talking about the remnant, the ones who remain. Same type of idea in chapter 12, verse 17, the remnant of her offspring. But I say to you the rest in Thyatira, even to those who have not this teaching. If you believe that our fundamental beliefs and the things that we've established as a church are true, then stand on them. Because what we believe and teach is important. I came across a song yesterday. It was such a beautiful song. But it mentioned gods in the song. And I thought it was a Christian song. It actually ended up being a, of another group of so-called Christians. And as I, I said, that's a, it's a catchy tune. It sounded like a hymn. I said, but I want to hear the rest of the words. And so I got it and I pulled it off of YouTube. And it was talking about gods. And I'm thinking, there are no gods out in the eons. And so I thought to myself, what informed that song? It was beautiful. It had a melody that could easily, it started out good, but then tucked in there was this little belief. The teaching informed that song. And so that's, that's what informs the way we sing, the way we live. All of that is informed by teaching. Sometimes I get to preaching too much and I think, what good is all this teaching? You know, we have Sabbath school classes and we have this and we have seminars and you think, well, aren't we getting kind of overweight on teaching and, and you know, too much teaching? Let's exercise it. I've heard people say that, but really, these are reminders. This is all this is, is a reminder of things you probably already know. Some of you already know all this stuff that I'm sharing with you. But notice, 
They have not adhered to this teaching and have no knowledge of the secrets of Satan. And they say, as they say, I put on you no other weight, but what you have, keep safe till I come. So there was a saying about the knowledge of Satan back in Thyatira's day. So notice the key points. The rest are the remnant, those who remain. They don't adhere to the teaching and they don't have anything to do with the knowledge of the secrets of Satan. Now that is interesting because secrets is a word that means like a deep sleep right before dawn. It's still kind of dark and you know it's sometimes really vivid and it's right before dawn. And so that's one way of interpreting that. Or something that's right below the surface of shallow water right beyond your reach kind of hidden and you could go for it if you wanted to but you'd have to make an effort that's the thing that's talking about here it reminds me of knowledge that is out of reach or forbidden any place in the bible that that happened knowledge of good and evil with the fruit now we don't have a tree sitting in front of us all the time why because Satan doesn't need a tree anymore. He can come to each one of us through his angels and through other influences, a lot of different influences in media, and try to get to us, us to think about these evil things without ever having a physical tree in front of us. It's what's going on here as well. Imagine a church that is so dark that if the preacher of that local church unchains the Bible and begins to translate it and gives you a copy to go home, and read, they will take that preacher and burn him at the stake. Could you imagine living in a time where that was taking place? Where there was certain knowledge that you were supposed to pursue, but not this knowledge. That's what was going on in the medieval times. In Thyatira, it was various belief systems and gods and goddess worship, sun worship. They would pursue these things and not pursue the truth. And so whatever that may be, it's darkness. And how do we overcome darkness? Well, not believing that teaching, it's going to be to believe Christ's teaching. That's how we're going to overcome darkness. The entire Bible, the words of Jesus. And at the end he says, you know what? If you'll overcome this, I will not add any other weight to you. He's talking about a period where, where if they were even to go back to the true teachings and to oppose the system and to reform it, that at a certain point, some of them will not be able to handle anything more. Now, if that's not the Reformation, I don't know what is. And I talked about Thyatira in, their, in that day and age, but it seems to specifically apply to the Reformation period. And notice there is a faithful people in that generation there. You know, we talk about the Waldensians and others who gave their lives for the Lord back in those days, who kept the, the Bible all the way through that. Revelation said there would be a remnant all the way through. The ones who would have that apostolic type of faith. And they would excite persecution. So we talk about the Bible-believing Waldensians. We talk about uh, their hidden Waldensian mountain villages where they would train their young people to go and to take the scriptures to universities and to other places. Um, these types of things. But we also know the story of severe persecution that came to these people. Where they would be killed for their faith. And so they were not the only ones. We find Waldensians, Hussites, Lutherans. You know, there were certain weights they could handle that some of them didn't even know about the Sabbath. We do know some Lutherans who did know about the Sabbath. Melanchthon is one of them. And so we find there were individuals along the way, even in Ireland, for instance, St. Patrick, he knew about the Sabbath. So we find there were individuals who knew about it. 
But most, the mainline thing they were doing was restoring, reforming one piece of truth after another. Eventually, you would think, if there's a truth that harkens back to true knowledge of the Creator, true knowledge of only good, that it would be restored. And it would counteract all this hidden, deep knowledge, this tradition. And that would eventually be the Sabbath. It would counteract not only the traditions, but also sun worship, which Thyatira had a problem with as well. And that's why Jesus says, He who overcomes keeps my works to the end. To him I will give rule over the nations. And he will be ruling them with a rod of iron. Whoa, this is Jesus who's supposed to rule with a rod of iron, right? Read the Psalms. It's Jesus who's supposed to, the Messiah who's supposed to do that. But he says, if we overcome, he will give us the nations. Give us the nations, Lord. We want them to be saved, right? And he will be ruling them with a rod of iron. So he who overcomes, notice, the, notice the, the, person, the pronoun there. He who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give rule over the nations, and he will be ruling them with a rod of iron. It's talking about the, it's talking about the overcomers, isn't it? It's either that or Jesus. I know Jesus is going to do it, personally, but for some reason he's giving us some kind of promise that we will have some part to play in that. Even as I have power from my Father. That makes it even clearer that, that he's giving us this. And I will give him, the one who overcomes, the morning star. He who has ears, let him hear what give ear, excuse me, to what the Spirit says to the churches. If we are faithful, if we don't go along with the false teachings, if we don't, if we rage against the darkness of the night, then we will be the ones who will overcome. And he will give us this part, this powerful part. And notice it has the language of Daniel chapter 2. They will be broken like the potter. That's exactly, almost a if you would take the words, you have at least an allusion pointing you back to Daniel where that image was there and this rock, this kingdom of God comes and strikes it and shatters it like, what, pottery. But this is Jesus coming and he's got those bronze feet and that replaces everything else, shatters into pieces. And so we have this beautiful, strong kingdom coming that will shatter this. Not us, but we have a part to play. So many people were faithful to the light that they had, and there will be a remnant of people at the second coming who will also be faithful. Peter says that we hasten, we look forward, and we hasten the coming of our Lord through how we live our lives, which is right what this text is saying. So we're not like comparing ourselves to each other. We're following Jesus. He's changing us, and then we become the light that shines in the darkness. If you look at the Reformation, this is just one timeline from Bible works. It goes from 1510 down to 1570. If you were to look at all those events that took place historically, there's a huge amount of events that took place to even begin a Reformation. Has the Reformation ended? It hasn't ended. We're not at the second coming yet. Ephesians says that the ministers and all of them equip the saints for the building up of the church, right? Until we reach perfect unity. That's what our job is to do, is every, every one of us minister together, and I'm just here to kind of encourage it and do it as well. But these efforts were not the end of history, because here we are living years and years later. We're, we're getting on to the was it 500th anniversary of the 95 Thesis being nailed upon the, the wall there. And you can read about that there. It's right there in the whole thing. But I'm going to zoom in a little bit on it. 
You have Luther's 95 Thesis there. You have a whole lot of things happening there. All of these things are happening. Anabaptists are being found. Talk about baptism. You find Zwingli and others are listed there. 95 Thesis right before there, and fi- before 1520. So this is what took place, and were p- faithful people in those churches, in those groups. Yeah, there were. But God is in the business of continuing on the Reformation. The same light that shone then is needed today. Jesus is described as being the light of the world in John chapter 1, and the light shines in darkness. Present tense keeps on shining. And we're living today in the present. The light still shines. That same light is needed in our dark world. And we find a great transcript of light in the scriptures. The light is God himself. This is what he's given us. It's not God himself. It's the closest thing we have. And as faulty as some translations are, it's, you still have the Word of God, even in some of the really faulty translations. But that's what we have. We have that same light that's needed. And we're told, especially today, we need this message. This is a manuscript written in 1904. The churches have become, have become, and she's writing in 1904. So she's looking back over history from the 1800s up to that point. She says, the churches have become as described in the 18th chapter of Revelation. That was in 1904. All right? So that, it, that was in effect then. If for some reason we don't see it today, if we just kind of like blinded, we just need to love each other, no, you know, we don't need teaching, we just need love. Well, we forget that in 1904, if you were to go to Beaver City, Nebraska, not a single Catholic would be welcome in the city limits nor would they allow a Catholic church. And I'm not saying that's a good practice. I'm just saying that's what the way they were. They were fearful of a merger between Protestants and Catholics because they knew that Catholics never conceded. They never gave in. And that the Council of Trent and these other councils had never revised their belief that you were saved by grace plus works plus plus, right? So they would never allow that. And so when an Adventist preacher comes through and says what their ministers used to say years ago, they're like, yeah. I'm not, I, don't, I don't like criticize them. I just say, well, here's how history unfolds. And they're like, yeah, we don't even talk about that anymore. But in 1904, when she's writing this, they all practiced this. They all re- recognized that, that we needed to be careful. Even other Protestant churches recognized that. So she's saying the churches had become, even back then when they were watching for it, as described in the 18th chapter of Revelation. Why are the messages of Revelation 14 given? Because the principles of the churches have, been, have become corrupted. So we have a message that benefits our church, but also benefits all the other churches as well. That's why when we do the pale horse this next fall, I'm going to talk to Lutheran pastors I'm going to talk to other Protestant pastors and say, why don't you come together and bring your congregation and, and join us in this? Not, not because I'm somehow compromising, but I think they need to reconsider that the Reformation is not over with. That the medieval church is waiting in the wing for the right time to reenact persecution and heinous crimes against humanity. And that sounds harsh, but that's, that's what we find described in Revelation. So apparently the whole world is guilty of receiving the mark of the beast. But the prophet sees a company who are not worshiping the beast, who have not received his mark in their foreheads or in their hands. Here is the patience of the saints. She's quoting Revelation 14, 12. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. 
So the result of us hastening and dispelling light in our own personal lives and in our church is that our characters are changed and we then begin to influence those around us and help dispel light in them. She says, the time of God's destructive judgments is the time of mercy. You know, we wonder why these things are happening in our world, politically, spiritually, socially, all these things are happening. It's a time of mercy for those who have no opportunity to learn what is truth. You say, well, we all got smartphones, we all got the internet. For some reason, even though tools are available, there is still a famine in the land. It has to be with, have something to do with creating a thirst. And for some reason also, God knows why, he chose the church to create a thirst. To, you, know, you know, when someone is drinking, it's pretty simple, right? When someone picks up that water bottle, if they're in the, sitting here in the pew next to you, or you're sitting next to them somewhere in like a car, and they pick up that water bottle and drink it, what is your natural thing that you... Almost some people automatically reach over and pick up a water bottle. Or I'm drinking a water, my water bottle, and all of a sudden it influences somebody else to pick up their water bottle. Two of you picked up your water bottle. <laughs> this is what the church is supposed to do. You ever have water right out of a mountain stream filtered through your you know, filter and it just tastes so sweet? Imagine you're drinking a glass of that ice cold water and there's somebody coming up the trail there and they're like, hey, I'm going to keep going, I'm going to keep going. And you know that they didn't pack water with them and you're like, hey, come get a drink. And at first they're like, no, i got to keep going. But then they see you go, ah, oh, it's so good. And they stop. Somehow we as a church have to influence people like that fellow travelers along this way, that this is something you really need. Because it says, tenderly will the Lord look upon these people, and upon us. His heart of mercy is touched. His hand is still stretched out to save. This is all the way down at the end. While the door is closed to those who would not enter, the religious people who choose not to accept the truths of the word of God will become like the Pharisees and Sadducees of old. The door will be shut to them eventually. And they, in a frenzy, will use whatever power they can muster to enforce false doctrines and, and traditions. But there will be amongst their flocks people who are waiting, even though the door has been closed to the leaders and different other people. Large numbers will be admitted who in these last days hear the truth for the first time. That's a promise. And if you doubt that quotation, which is written in 1906, all you got to do is go to Revelation. You see a huge multitude that is gathered in at the end of time. So the seven churches, back to that concept again. The impure church, if you go up here, in the medieval times, if they did not respond to the Reformation, they become orthodox. Eventually, they don't really participate in the worldwide mission the way God intended, and they end up being unfaithful to Jesus, adulterous. That's the progression of the churches in Revelation. If you take them as historical periods, that's the progression at the end of time as well. And so while the impure church progresses to orthodoxy, forcing the forcing and all of that infidelity, the pure church continues to fulfill its mission, is apostolic, and remains faithful to Jesus down at the end. And darkness is swallowed up by Jesus himself when they see him. It says, he who overcomes, which means you subdue or you, the problem or you gain the victory, and keeps my works to the end, I will give rule over the nations. And we will have that morning star. We will do as Jesus did. We will teach as Jesus taught. 
We will even, like in the desert, when he was overcoming the, the devil, he uses the scriptures. We will be like Jesus, and he will help us not only in those overcoming moments, but also help others know him as well. It says he'll have a rod of iron, and so nothing will stand against him. And the challenge here is, will we overcome darkness by looking to him and have him be our coming ruler? Will we be his friend? Will we be like, he says, even as I have power for my father, will we have that type of relationship with him? And so we receive the light and we overcome darkness by receiving the morning star. I would say, if you haven't received him yet, if you haven't received Christ as your friend and said, you know what, here's my life, take control, it is a mess without you. Today's the day to do it. If you haven't been baptized yet, I would say, you know, what are you waiting for? You know, they would say right there on that day, repent and be baptized. You know, we can easily show you what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus and have that take place for you. And if you have been baptized, you have committed to Christ, this is a time to recommit to Christ. Because you'll have temptations come your way well beyond the ones that I face, things that uh, you'll need God's power to overcome. And I'm just here to encourage you, let's recommit to him and look to him for that power to shed light into all of our darkest moments. That's really where the light belongs. All eyes on Jesus. That's the one who we want to have reign. So our closing song takes this concept. It says, if we're afraid, if we're in darkness, if we need a new experience, let's come to Jesus, and he'll give us the confidence, the faithfulness, as we seek his face.
Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the words of Jesus, how he comes to us like a consuming fire, like the author of light himself, and offers to give us not only the promise to overcome, but the power to do it as well. Lord Jesus, we want to dispel anything we've learned or been taught or viewed or just uh, had consume our lives at one point or another. We want to dispel all that false teaching and in its place put your beautiful words and look forward to the day when you'll come again and we'll be with you forever. Dispel the darkness in our lives. Guide us to be victorious day by day. We pray this in Jesus' name.